Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, literally Heather. Okay, guys, I am hopeful I can get through this show for you guys. My son has given me some sort of cough and congestion. Feels like my lungs are being squeezed in a vice grip, so I'm coughing like every five seconds. I'm going to try to do my best, though. First up, as always, your Palmetto State Armory deal of the day is a thousand rounds of 115 grain full metal jacket, nine millimeter, for only $249.90, which breaks down to 25 cents a round. You can snag that ammo at the link in the show description. So I usually try to start off with some 2A news, and I have some for you today. A group of young Georgians have standing to sue county judges over the constitutionality of the state's prohibition on people under the age of 21 years of age getting gun carry licenses. This was a ruling that came out of the 11th Circuit, reversing a district court's dismissal of the case. The young people said the age age restrictions on carry licenses prevent them from exercising their Second Amendment rights. They want to carry guns. They also said because they face dangerous situations and work in high crime areas. They're suing probate judges who issue gun carry licenses and Georgia's Commissioner of Public Safety, who designs the license application forms. A district court in Georgia dismissed the suit from the three Georgians under 21 at the time and the Firearms Policy Coalition without making a determination on the merits of their constitutional argument. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit said, instead, the lower court reasoned the plaintiffs don't have standing because they haven't alleged a cognizable injury traceable to the defendants, that the case was moot because Georgia laws have changed to loosen loosen licensing requirements, and that the case was unripe because the young people haven't applied for and been denied a carry license, nor are they being prosecuted for unlawfully carrying a gun. On appeal, the question turns on whether the plaintiff suffered an injury. In fact, that is very traceable to the defendant, and that can be redressed by a court's order directed at the defendant, Judge Andrew Brasher said in his opinion. We believe they have, Brasher said, that the young people have been have standing because being forced to choose between suffering criminal punishment or giving up a constitutional right is, in fact, an injury. Laying out a standard for injury in cases where plaintiffs allege a law acts as a barrier to exercising a constitutional right and setting this case apart from others addressing carry laws for those aged 18 to 20. This case isn't mute, mute, moot. (laughs) He also said, because even under Georgia's new laws that waive a license requirement for some groups, people under 21 are not granted licenses to carry firearms. While the plaintiffs 
turned 21 since they brought this suit, one of them is still under the age of 21, Brasher said, and the advocacy group said its members aged 18 to 20, so that case isn't moot due to the plaintiff's ages either. And the plaintiff's lack of attempt to get a carry license doesn't make the case unripe, Brasher said, because doing so would be a futile gesture when they know they don't meet the state's requirements. Brasher agreed with the lower court that the young people can't sue Georgia's Commissioner of Public Safety because he is too attenuated from the enforcement of the carry prohibitions, but said the probate judges are not. He reversed the district court's dismissal as to the case against the probate judges and affirmed as to the case against the commissioner. The case follows a ruling earlier this year in the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit nixing Pennsylvania's gun carry bar on people age 18 to 20. Well done, my dear friend Cody Wisniewski. Super proud of you. This is an awesome win for you. Hopefully, as you work this through the system, it will apply in Georgia as well. Speaking of defense, our defense secretary transferred the functions and duties of the office to his deputy secretary of defense, Kathleen Hicks. That name sounds familiar. It should. She's another one of Obama's leftovers and was his principal deputy undersecretary of defense for policy during his administration. Secretary Austin was recently under general anesthesia for non-surgical procedures, plural. The Defense Department said yesterday the procedures were related to a bladder issue after Austin was hospitalized and then admitted to a critical care unit. A prolonged hospital stay is not anticipated, two doctors at Walter Reed National Military Center said, In Monday's statement, we anticipate the secretary will be able to resume his normal duties tomorrow. The current bladder issue is not expected to change his anticipated full recovery. His cancer prognosis remains excellent. Austin was hospitalized last month in intensive intensive care for complications following a recent elective medical procedure. It was later revealed that he had prostate cancer. Austin was initially scheduled to travel to Brussels this week to attend meetings with NATO defense ministers and the Ukraine defense contact group. The trip was canceled, but Wednesday's meeting with the Ukraine defense contact group will be held virtually. Austin previously faced widespread criticism for the delay in disclosing the hospitalization. He apologized for his handling of the matter and following criticism The Biden administration standardized notification rules so the White House would be alerted if cabinet secretaries were unable to perform their duties. A White House official told NBC News Austin's office has provided the White House and the National Security Council with regular updates this week. A separate official said Sunday notification of Austin's hospitalization was executed in accordance with protocol. Have no fear. The world is falling apart, but we have a capable woman now in charge of our defense. Staying in the vein of international policy, Biden has issued a national security memorandum requiring foreign governments receiving U.S. military aid to provide written assurance 
the assistance will be used in compliance with international law. The White House's demand for extra accountability issued Friday takes place as Biden has ramped up his criticism of Israel's military campaign in Gaza, calling the continuing assault on Hamas over the top last week. While Biden's ultimatum was not aimed at any specific country, it was noteworthy as it came on the heels of concerns voiced by lawmakers regarding Israel's Gaza campaign amid increasing accusations of genocide. Senator Chris Van Hollen, who is a Democrat out of Maryland, last year proposed a, proposed a budget amendment in which military aid would be similarly subject to international law compliance, but now says that he will withdraw it in light of Biden's order. All of these key elements of an amendment have now been incorporated into the National Security Memo issued by the president. Van Hollen and more than a dozen Democratic lawmakers welcomed Biden's latest move, saying it would put additional guardrails on the government of Israel, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, to protect human rights. Biden's action comes 18 weeks after the October 7th surprise attack against Israel by the Palestinian militant group Hamas, which in turn led to an all-out invasion of Gaza, as you all already know. Biden ordered 100 governments receiving weapons from the United States to provide credible and reliable written assurances to ensure global compliance with global legal standards. The directive further requires foreign governments to assure the delivery of U.S. humanitarian aid to civilian populations affected by conflicts with regular progress reports submitted to Congress and the White House. U.S. allies face a deadline to sign off on assurances within 180 days. However, those involved in active conflicts such as Ukraine and Israel have just 45 days to comply. Biden's order specifies, it's not like they're fighting a war or anything, right? Like if you're just chilling and you're taking our money, you get 180 days. You're in the middle of a war, you have 45 days. Biden's order specifies that if any issues emerge with compliance, a plan must be implemented to address and resolve the situation. Such remediation could include actions from refreshing the assurances. Literally, you guys, they're like, oh, just send us a letter. Tell us that you're going to do what what you say you will, how you're going to spend the money, and then If you don't do it, just send us another letter. Just refresh that letter a little bit. Shoot that back over to us. Holy shit, man. Since 1950, Israel has been the largest recipient of U.S. military aid with about $3.8 billion annually from Washington, making it the top beneficiary of such funding worldwide. Wouldn't it be really fascinating if maybe, I don't know, we just cut the funding off if they didn't follow through with their quote-unquote assurances. It's a novel concept, I know. Turning to the domestic side of things, the number of cattle in America has plummeted to its lowest point in decades, sparking concerns among ranchers about the fate of the U.S. beef industry. This is a bad situation for America's cattle farmers and America because we're producing 1 billion pounds less beef 
than we were in this country just a year ago. That's John Boyd Jr., the president of National Black Farmers Association, said Thursday, we're not investing in America's beef and cattle farmers, and Biden policies are hurting America's cattlemen, such as myself. They should be invested in America's cattle farmers and making sure that we have the tools needed to stay on the farm. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, nationwide beef cattle inventory dropped to 28.2 million this year, the lowest since the 1970s, and down 2% from a year ago. Total U.S. cattle and calf inventory dropped to its lowest level since 1951. Agricultural economists say persistent drought over the last three years, along with high input costs and inflation, are putting pressure on both consumers and farmers. Economists say demand for beef has remained strong since the COVID-19 pandemic. During lockdowns, people started grilling more. Beef sold for an average $5 a pound last year, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Experts predict that prices will climb over the next few years. Americans are going to pay the price at their local grocery stores, Boyd said. We're already seeing such a steep hike in beef in this country. And because we're not supporting these cattlemen such as myself, the Biden administration isn't paying attention to this national crisis. This is a national crisis for America's cattlemen, and this administration has turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to something that needs immediate attention. I think this is a cue. Everyone listening to the show, go buy some steaks tonight, get you some hamburger. Everyone needs to participate. Keep the farmers where they are. Uh, keep keep the beef because I'm not eating fucking bugs. So you guys just go get some fucking meat. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say so many cuss words. Get a little excited when I think my ribeyes are not going to be available anymore. <laughs> um, Special Counsel Robert Hur's shocking report on Biden and his deteriorating mental state has Democrats wishing that there was a way to change the 2024 ticket, but fearing the time to do so has already passed. With the primary calendar in full swing and Vice President Kamala Harris's polling way worse than her boss, A well-placed Democratic operative said it is realistic Harris may replace Biden as a result of his diminished capacities. Though the person added they suspected the party's slate of candidates would be the same as four years ago. Worries about Biden's health are reflected in polling, showing a majority of Americans share concerns about his age. But veteran Democratic operatives told the Post there's little chance that Biden will be replaced at this stage of the race, except by his own volition. The president owns the DNC lock, stock, and barrel, said strategist Brad Bannon. The only way the DNC will have an opportunity to pick a nominee is if Joe Biden decides to step down. Top Democrats have publicly stood behind Biden despite his frequent gaffes and stumbles, even if they wish in private that someone else could fill his shoes. There are definitely some Democrats who have concerns about his viability in November, Bannon said. But I think 
that kind of sentiment is spotty and not particularly concentrated. Bannon added that pressure on Biden to step aside would be more acute if former President Trump wasn't the likely GOP nominee with his own baggage to negotiate. The only Democrat currently challenging Biden for the nomination is Rep. Dean Phillips. Other potential 2024 alternatives like Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, have already thrown their weight behind the incumbent, giving the president even more power over his fate in any intra-party struggle. They've set up this entire year with the primary system in such a way that they've loaded it for Biden. The vice president has dismal approval numbers, with a December Monmouth University poll showing her at just 35% approval, 57% disapproval. There has been a sense that she lacks even Biden's level of popularity and that she'd be an easy target for the Republicans to run against. Rep. Ronnie Jackson from Texas said that Democrats have confided to him they're disappointed in Biden becoming the likely nominee, though none have gone as far as to swap him out of the ticket. Democrats can't stand the fact that he's their nominee and that he's going to drag the whole party down, he said. They're worried they're going to lose House and Senate seats because people are either going to switch parties and vote for Republicans because they can't deal with him being in office anymore, or they're just not going to go out and vote at all. The DNC did not immediately respond to a request for comment. However, amidst this heightened scrutiny of Joe Biden and his mental capabilities, there is someone who will comment, Kamala Harris herself. She told reporters she is ready to serve. I bet she is. The question is, will it be on her knees or will she be on her feet? According to a Monday report from the Wall Street Journal, Harris told the outlet, I'm ready to serve. There's no question about that. Ma'am, we all know. When she was asked about the concerns regarding Biden's age and decline, the response came during an interview last week, just a couple days before the news of the special counsel report. Jennifer Palmieri, who worked under the Obama and Clinton presidencies, said there was always going to be a lot of scrutiny and pressure on her in the 2024 campaign, and that moment's here now. I think the special counsel report has sort of accelerated that moment. Case report detailed that Heard declined from prosecuting the president in part because of evidence pointing to Biden's lack of mental acuity. He does not think the man would be capable of standing any sort of trial. (laughs) And he, he wouldn't be able to be convicted because people would feel so sorry for him. Blowing up all over my news feed yesterday was Senator Mike Lee and J.D. Vance warning the public of the inner workings of the most recent Ukraine bill. They argued Monday that the latest Senate proposal to fund Ukraine and Israel could spark an impeachment of former President Trump if he's re-elected in November. Vance sent a memo to each of his Republican colleagues in the Senate claiming an impeachment time bomb is buried in the bill's text in the case Trump should try to halt funding for Ukraine while president. The supplemental represents an attempt 
by the foreign policy blob deep state to stop Donald Trump from pursuing his desired policy. And if he does so anyways, to provide grounds to impeach him and undermine his administration. The proposed aid for Ukraine totals $60 billion, is part of a larger $95.3 billion package that also includes funding for Israel in its fight against Palestinian militant group Hamas, humanitarian assistance for Palestinians in Gaza, the West Bank, and funds for U.S. allies in the Indo-Pacific. In his memo, Vance contended the foreign aid bill includes $1.6 billion for foreign military financing in Ukraine and $13.7 billion for the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, which both are slated to expire on September 30th of 2025, nearly nine months into the possible second term for Trump. He pointed to the December of 2019 impeachment of Trump when the Democratic House majority impeached the former president for his dealings with Ukraine, including decisions to pause funding to Kyiv. The Senate later voted to acquit Trump on impeachment charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress in February of 2020. The Ohio Republican's staunch ally of the former president argued if Trump were to withdraw or pause financial support for Ukraine's war in order to bring the conflict to a conclusion, lawmakers could argue he violated budget law, as they did with the prior impeachment. Trump has repeatedly claimed he would end the Ukraine war with Russia in 24 hours and has called for a pause in aid to the war-torn country in the past as conflict approaches its two-year mark. The former president lambasted the Senate's foreign bill over the weekend. They want to give like almost $100 billion to a few countries. $100 billion, Trump said at a rally in South Carolina. I said, why do we do this? If you do, you give them not $100 billion, you give it to them as a loan. The Senate voted to move the package one step closer to its final passage on Sunday, dipping into what was supposed to be a two-week recess. The bill comes after dramatic collapse of the bipartisan border security package due to GOP opposition. Trump also urged Senate Republicans to oppose that bill, which he called a death wish package, causing some lawmakers to accuse the former president of using it as an issue to campaign against Joe Biden. The final vote to pass the foreign aid bill is expected in the Senate this week. Mike Johnson has already declined the legislation from the Senate, so we are stuck for longer than the end of this week. But with that being said, thank you guys for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please share, like, subscribe, do all the things. This evening at 8.30 Eastern Standard Time, Myself and my two co-hosts, Eric and Chris, will be hosting Patriots and Petticoats on all of the platforms where you like to tune in. I would love to have you guys there. Join the conversation. Otherwise, I will be back on Friday morning because we have book club on Wednesday. If I don't speak to you before then, you guys take care. Have a wonderful rest of your week. 
and have a happy Valentine's Day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.